Well, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of, oh man, I was hoping you'd say Psalms. How'd y'all know it was First Peter? Man, Brenda, y'all cheated. Would you have said Psalms otherwise? Yeah. We've been going through the book of Psalms for almost like this whole semester here, so I was really hoping that you'd remember that we were going through the book of Psalms. And uh, we've been spending a lot of time in it, trying to, you know, just not just Pastor Preston and myself, but also a lot of our uh, visiting uh, pastors and speakers, missionaries have gotten in on the action, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And we've tried to cover a lot of different, different genres of psalms. Uh, there's um, all sorts of them. There's psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of wisdom, psalms of thanks, uh, royal psalms, psalms of Torah. And of course, imprecatory psalms. And as, as I start going through all the different types of psalms, I kind of feel like Forrest Gump talking about shrimp. There's like shrimp for everybody. There's a psalms for every aspect of our life that we're going through. There's ways that we can worship and be ministered to by, uh, by God and his word. And so I pray that that series through psalms has been an encouragement uh, to each one of you. But as you all know, we're switching gears here this summer, and we're going to be uh, going through uh, the book of First Peter. And my hope this morning is to give you a broad overview of 1 Peter, to introduce the book to you, the author, the audience, and uh, maybe touch on a couple of the major themes of the book. And we're going to be looking at the first couple of verses. I started off, I'm really bad at this, I started off with five verses and then I kind of started whittling it down and I was like, we're not going to get through more than two this morning. And uh, you might be like, man, this is like snail's pace. But I want you to know, as I was studying through this, it wasn't uncommon to find other pastors who have preached through this who took like a whole month on the first two verses. And uh, so I want you to know that we are going lightning speed, even though you might not feel that way. Uh, so we're going to read First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2 specifically, so I invite you to join me there. Uh, so First Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there, not for very long, but I really appreciate that writers in the New Testament really knew how to write a letter. Like, they don't make you wait until the end of the letter to figure out who's writing to you. It seems like that is important contextual information to know who's talking to you and how seriously you should take that. Like, if my mom's writing to me, uh, I, you know, and getting on to me for something, I'd rather know that at, right at the very beginning, you know, as opposed to somebody else that I don't care about. You know, it's like, it, it's important to know who's writing to you, and New Testament authors did a fantastic job of letting you know who was writing. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, makes it pretty plain. Uh, there's some theologians who question whether or not Peter actually wrote this book uh, because there uh, were his... The Greek is very refined. You wouldn't expect this type of Greek to be spoken or written by, um, you know, just your, your normal fisherman like Peter was. And so some people look at that and say, I'm not sure if Peter wrote this. And, and the theology of it sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. And, and uh, so these textual critics will look at it and question uh, whether Peter, Peter actually wrote this or not. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, this, this guy Peter, he stood before the Sanhedrin and when he was standing before him, the Sanhedrin people looked at him and, and after Peter and John spoke, and they said, we recognize these are unschooled and uneducated men, but they don't sound like it. And they took note that they had been at the feet of Jesus. 
And so for me, it's not a problem to see this fisherman that God had taken and through decades of ministry and traveling uh, through the, the known world at that time and, and uh, speaking Greek, probably learning after decades, you'd like to think that a guy would have matured and grown in some of his abilities, especially a man like Peter and, and his relationship with God. And God would use him in amazing ways. And so I have no problem looking at this passage and, and accepting that this was written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it's, uh, I want you to know, it's one of those things that we breeze through really quick when we say apostle of Jesus Christ. This is unique. We don't see a lot of the other gifts, the other, like, we don't see a teacher of Jesus Christ. We don't see, uh, you know, an evangelist of Jesus Christ. We don't see that kind of language in the New Testament as much. This is unique of the apostles, and it's really emphasizing his authority uh, to be able to say, to speak on God's behalf. When he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is an eyewitness and a disciple and an eyewitness of the life and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And he has the authority on par with, uh, like the, the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, to be able to speak uh, the word of God, to be able to, uh, to like we have scriptures here. Uh, all scriptures, God breathed, and, and uh, Peter had that authority and just uh, in being an apostle of Jesus Christ, to be able to speak on God's behalf, to speak scripture to his people. And so uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's talking to Christians who are in what we would know in modern day terms as Turkey. He's talking to all these areas and ways that they defined them back then, and uh, again, when scholars look at this passage, uh, one of the questions we ask a lot of is, are, is the author talking to Jews or to Gentile Christ, uh, or non-Christian? Who's he talking, you know, the author talking to? And the consensus, I think, uh, by and large, is that he's talking not just to Jews or just to Gentiles, but he's talking to both sets of Christians. Because at this point in the church, the church would no longer, especially in this area, wouldn't be characterized by one group uh, one nationality, one race of Christians. It would be Jews and Gentiles alike. But Peter was known, uh, some people think it was written primarily to Gentiles. Others think it was primarily to the Jews. Um, partly that is because Peter was known as the apostle to, uh, to the circumcised, to the Jews. Uh, yet when you start reading through this letter, a lot of the ways that he's talking about people who were not a people, um, you know, uh, he wasn't, didn't seem to be referring to Jews. seems like he was referring to Gentiles. And so, uh, we, again, we look at this and say he's probably talking to both. Why do we have to pick one or the other? I don't know, but it seems like he's talking to both. Again, he's saying uh, he's talking to these Christians who are in this area in Asia, Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey, and he says, elect exiles. Uh, that's another one of those terms that we've, it's important for us to figure out. What does it mean to be an exile? Uh, what some of the ideas is that some of these people, especially if they were Jews, could have been part of the, the great dispersion that happened through the course of Jewish history and uh, their nation being taken over by Assyria and Babylon, and Jews were dispersed throughout uh, the known world of that time. And so, so there might be Jews that were located there as, as a part of that. But it also could be uh, Jews and uh, Gentile Christians 
who were exiled because of their faith, uh, because there was persecution that was ramping up in the early church that they were experiencing. And so they, it might have included some uh, Jews and Gentiles, both who were being persecuted for their faith and exiled as a result of that. Uh, but I think this also has bigger, broader implications in saying that all Christians are exiles in this world. This world is not our home. And in this passage, I think, in this book of 1 Peter, really acknowledges uh, that we, uh, as Christians, are sojourners. We are aliens. We are exiles in this world. This world's not our home. And uh, so in a very real sense, uh, this uh, displacement uh, is, speaks to not just physical, uh, worldly kind of displacement. It's, it's a spiritual uh, matter that Peter is going to address here a little bit later on. And so we have Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who's speaking to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of, uh, with his blood. May grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray here real quick before we jump into this passage. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that is truth and life. I pray, God, that you will open up our hearts and our eyes to understand uh, what you have revealed to us. We know it is your will and your desire, God, that we, we seek, that we, uh, we see uh, your word and that your, your truth, and God, that we obey that, that we walk in obedience, that we walk in holiness, that we reflect the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. And uh, Lord, I pray that you will be glorified as we read your word and apply it. And for your honor and glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the series theme that uh, Pastor Preston and I, as we were talking, we included uh, Brenda in on this as well, because it's got to get up on a slide and look really nice as well. The series theme that we're going to be talking about over the next few months is holy living in the midst of suffering. Holy living in the midst of suffering. I want to get this ingrained in your heads a little bit, and so I'm going to ask for you to respond. I just want you to, when it's time to say suffering, I want you all to say suffering, okay? So the series theme is holy living in the midst of? Holy living in the midst of? Good. Y'all are awesome. Holy. What does it mean to be holy? We've talked about holiness a whole lot, and so we're not going to spend a, a lot of time on that today, but holy comes from the word uh, hagias. That's the Greek word. It means sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, religious or ceremonially consecrated. That's what it uh, literally means, is to be set apart. Uh, some uh, scholars would think that this word hagios is derived from the word hagos, which would mean um, means awful, something awful. And it would make sense if hagios is to be set apart from something Hagas, it makes sense it would come from that. We're set apart from something uh, awful or commonplace, the profane. Uh, we're set apart from something. Um, so it literally means um, uh, set apart. And to understand this definition in a technical way, I think, is really important and good. But it's helped me to also understand the term for holy from a relational aspect. Because you know, when you just say something is set apart, it seems very impersonal, unrelational. Like when Brenda, I give Brenda some uh, M&Ms. We, we might start a new thing called M&M Mondays, just because it's Monday. The M&Ms bright the day. And if you don't know this about Brenda, Brenda likes to separate out her M&Ms by their different colors. 
It's a very impersonal process. I got a hint. This is not a time to amen, Esther. <laughs> this is a very impersonal process. All the M&Ms, I believe, still get eaten, you know, and it doesn't really matter in the end. You know, it's a very impersonal, unrelational process. But I think this term set apart has some very important relational connotations to it. Holiness is very relational. It can also mean special to God, special to the Lord. It's a word that connects us in relationship to God. To be holy, to be set apart, means to be special to God. What an amazing calling it is for us to be holy, to be special to God, for his enjoyment and for his glory. The whole world is living according to the flesh, to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That is what motivates the world, that self-exalting pride. It's what leads to sin and death and darkness. The profane is commonplace. And what is commonplace is profane. And this is the direction that the world is heading in. And yet God has called us, chosen us, separated us out to go a different direction. That's what holiness is. Uh, I, it probably got overused for a little while there, but there used to be pictures and shirts of a bunch of fish, a school of fish. You might have seen them. And a school of fish, got to get my hands going the same way, are all going this way. And there's one fish right in the middle of the school going the other way. Have you all seen that picture? That's a good idea about holiness. Now, I hope we're not the only fish going the opposite direction, but it really is. It's the sense of what's going on with holiness is we're set apart. We're going a different direction than everyone else is going. And so I want to give you this morning an overview of both holiness in the book of First Peter and also an overview of suffering throughout the, first, uh, the book of First Peter. And these are both bird's eye views of, as I mean, we're going to march through the whole book just going through the passages. I want you to see how holiness is built into every single chapter, and I want you to see how suffering at the same time is built into every single chapter that Peter talks about. And so starting off in this overview of holiness, again, we're a bird flying over, just picking every time we see something talking about holiness, we're going to pull that out, and same with suffering. So the, in the overview of holiness, the first time we come to it is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15. And this could actually be a theme verse, it's a powerful verse, it could be a theme verse for this series or, or for this chapter at bare minimal. This chapter 1, 15, it says, be holy in all your conduct. That's pretty clear, right? That's holy living. Be holy in everything that you do, in all your conduct. And it goes on, be holy as I am holy. That's what God's command to us is as his people. That's his call to be special to him, to be like him, and to have relationship and fellowship with him, to be holy. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, you are a holy priesthood. Continues on to verse 9, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Remember, being separated out, we're, that's the relational aspect. We're separated to God, special to God. Chapter 2 through 5 continues to march on and talks about what this holy conduct looks like in every aspect of life, in every arena of life that there is. Peter is trying to tell us how to be holy. What does this practically look like and mean when it's lived out in your life? It changes how you live. It changes your relationships. changes the way you think. It changes the way you think about everything. changes the way you interact with people and relate to them. Everything is different. We're going a different direction. 
Chapter 2 starts off talking about what this holy living looks like towards governing authorities. It says to be subject to every human institution. We're not going in depth in all of these, but I want you to, again, get just an idea about how holiness is applied into practical living. So holy living towards governing authorities. Chapter 2 continues on. What does holy living look like? Servants towards their masters. What does that look like? Chapter 3, holy living. What does that look like in the home, in your marriage, between wives and husbands? Chapter 4, holy living in the world, not as Gentiles do for their own passions, but for the will of God. Chapter 4 continues on. Holy living in the church. This is important. You know, how do we love earnestly? How do we forgive How do we show hospitality one for another? How do we serve each other? Holy living in the church. And then chapter 5 talks about holy leadership. Talks about elders shepherding God's flock willingly, not selfishly, and not domineering. And then chapter 5 continues and talks about holy submission. Younger Christians towards the elders, but also in everyone in humility towards each other. It doesn't leave a whole lot of area outside of this life of holiness. Everything is encapsulated within these categories. This holy living permeates everything that we do as Christians. I read a book a while back called Do Hard Things. And I don't know about you, but this call to be holy for me is like one of the hardest things for me to try to do. It's a battle to be holy. I might be doing okay in like one or two of these categories, but it usually seems like in the other three, four, or five, that I'm really struggling in. Holiness and, you know, it just, it just seems like this constant battle to, to be holy, to be like that fish swimming against the flow of culture and being different. I identify with Paul when he, he stresses the struggle of holiness. He says, for I don't understand my own actions, for I, do what I, I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I can't do it. It's like I, I don't have the ability to carry that out. That's the struggle of holiness. It's hard. It's difficult. You know, Paul says in Ephesians, he tells us to put on the full armor of God. And even that, it's like putting on the full armor of God. It's like, that's, that's great, but just putting on the armor is like getting the family ready on a Sunday morning to come to church. It's just like, it's hard to, you know, sometimes just do what we need to do to put on the full armor of God. A call to be holy seems to me in my sinful flesh to be enough. That's enough to take all of my time, my focus, my effort. That's like God has completely booked my calendar with just striving to be holy. That's all I can handle. It's enough to be swimming against the flow of culture and to live for God. And there's part of me is like, that's enough, God. Don't give me anything more. I've got all I can handle just to be holy. You know, that's, that's hard. I feel like a, a salmon. Have you ever seen those uh, documentaries of the salmon? They're spawning and they're swimming up the river. Some of those, I was looking it up, uh, some of them, they, they swim like hundreds of miles, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. I saw one that said like 1,000, but I'm not sure if it's actually that far, but I think it, maybe it is. I think, can you imagine going hundreds and hundreds of miles swimming against the current? Okay, you got to imagine that as a salmon. Okay, work with me here. That would be hard. That would be discouraging. That is frustrating. 
being a poor little salmon going up that river. And imagine, and, and I've just got, I'm a salmon with a bad attitude. Just imagine that. So I'm a salmon with a bad attitude going up this river. I've been swimming for miles and miles already, and I come to one of those huge, massive waterfalls. I'm like, oh my goodness, you expect me to get over this waterfall? Have you seen those documentaries where they have the waterfall, and these salmon are like, I don't know how they do it. They're jumping up these waterfalls and getting up, you know, you're going not just against the flow, but you're going against the weight of gravity pushing water on top of you. You're overcoming that to get up. Isn't that, that's enough? That's what holiness is like, is pushing, you know, swimming against the river and getting up over those waterfalls. Isn't that enough? And then you're like, oh, wait, there's bears? There's bears? <laughs> I didn't sign up for this whole bear thing. Not only that, there's fishermen. I can't even eat in peace. You know, and, and it's like, that's, that's kind of what I feel like Peter's almost kind of starting to talk about, is, is he's saying that he's, God has called us to this life of holiness. And at the same time, we are being called to this life that includes suffering. We're already going against the flow of the river in holiness, and that's hard. But Peter's also saying, hey guys, this river that you're going up also includes bears, it also includes waterfalls, and it includes fishermen with fake food. I could preach on that for another couple of hours if you want to be to, but I will forego that temptation. And that's what God is showing us in 1 Peter is that there's a very close relationship between holiness and suffering. It's part of the same river that God has called us to. See, this is the tension that we have, I think, in, in our American Christian lives. It's as easy to think that if we get holiness right, it's easy to think then that the suffering part should go away. That if we live right, then life ought to be easier. We're all, I think most of us are familiar with the prosperity gospel. That says, if you live the right way, you can be... What? What? Rich, yeah. If you live the right way, if you're holy, you can be rich. And that's a heresy for so many different reasons. Another temptation to go down that road and we, can't, we don't have time. I think a lot of us have recognized the heresy within that. And while we have rejected the prosperity gospel, we have, I think, embraced another form of the prosperity gospel We've just downgraded it a bit, made it more realistic, perhaps even a little bit more attainable. It doesn't look quite so selfish, but I'm here to warn you that I think it's just as heretical. And that is to think that if, if I live the right way, I don't have to be rich, God. I just don't want to suffer. I just don't want life to be hard. Is that too much to ask of God? It's just the same as the prosperity gospel. We've just changed the conditions, haven't we? Same heart, same mentality that goes into both. But Peter, in 1 Peter, he talks about holiness in the midst of suffering. Every single chapter that he mentions holiness, he also mentions suffering and hardship and trial. Let me give you an overview of suffering throughout the book of 1 Peter. Again, we're flying over, and we're just going to pull out from each chapter when it mentions about suffering. It says this in chapter 1, verse 6. 
It says, in this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, I want to be very clear, when this says a little while, when we think of a little while, we're like, okay, God, I'm okay with the trial for a little while, which means a lot of different things depending on how old you are. If you're a kindergartner, five minutes is an eternity. You know, it's just like time, it's, it's different for every generation. If you're middle-aged like myself, four years doesn't seem, it seems like a little while. Uh, if you're older in life, all of your youth seems like a little while. You know, when we think about little while, it can mean a lot of different things. Later on in this book of, of Peter, he, he talks about how all flesh is like grass and how it withers away. And so when it's talking about little while, we like to think that we can take what the suffering and these trials in like five-minute increments, maybe 10 minutes, couple of days, maybe year. But we have clear limitations on what we think that a little while means and the role that God, the time frame that God is allowed to use suffering and hardship in our lives. And when this says a little while, it is not meaning little while the way that we think of a little while. This is God's little while that makes our lives look like blades of grass that wither. And we just want to be clear with that. 2.12 says, when you are wrongfully spoken of and accused are of evildoers. You are being wrongfully accused. And 2.19 it says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing to God. And 2.21 it says, for this you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in the cross. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 3.17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Chapter 4, verse 4. People will malign you. Chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. 4.16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you hear that? While doing good. That's the, that's the, the holy living there. 5.9, resist him, Satan. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced uh, by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And in 5.10 it says, And after you have suffered a little while, again, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Every chapter that talks about holiness talks about how it is married with and coupled in this life with, with hardship and suffering and trials. Holy living in the midst of suffering. Have I made you suffer enough this morning yet? I take that as a no. Let's keep going. It's hard to talk about suffering with the American people, with us. It's hard to talk 
with Americans about suffering. We do everything we can to remove suffering as far away from us as possible. And I understand that, and that is not always bad. I want to acknowledge that. It's not always bad to remove unnecessary suffering away from you. Jessica Lawson, for instance, wants to get rid of poisonous snakes from around her house. She wants to get rid of all snakes from around her house. She wants to get rid of sticks that look like snakes from around her house. That is okay, Jessica. Uh, I want to wear a seatbelt. I want to remove unnecessary suffering from my life and my kids' lives, my family's life. I want to brush my teeth. I want to remove unnecessary suffering from my life. And that is okay. That is okay and it's good. But in 1 Peter, God is telling that there is a necessary, there is a necessary suffering that is connected to holiness, that is connected to God's holiness. And if we are not careful while we're trying to remove any and all suffering out of our lives because that's what we do, that's the flow of human nature, while we're trying to remove any and all suffering out of our lives, when we run from people and circumstances that are hard and painful and difficult, we may actually be actively fighting against the will of God. Have you thought about that? In the endeavor to remove all pain, hardship, trials, and suffering out of our lives, to get them out or run away from them, we may actively be fighting against the will of God. Did you hear that when I read through some of the passages about suffering? Let me highlight a few. 3.17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. 4.19 Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. And I think this last one ratchets it up even more. 2.21 says, To this you have been called. Christ suffered for you that you might follow in his steps. You've been called. This is part of God's will. We must, as Christians, be willing not just to endure, but to embrace holy suffering. I say holy suffering because I want to clarify a couple things. First off, when we talk about holy suffering, this is not a word we use is called asceticism. Asceticism refers to people who think that it's glorifying to God to suffer just for the sake of suffering. These are like some of the monks of old. Have you heard stories about the monks in their service of God would sit on top of poles that are like 30 feet tall and they would have no shelter. They would live up there for like decades and decades of their lives. People would have to come and bring them food. That's asceticism. They are suffering for the sake of suffering, thinking that it glorifies God for them to do that. Uh, some people would take whips, and they would beat themselves because they were suffering for the sake of suffering, thinking that that glorified God. This, that is not what we are talking about. That is not this. We're not suffering just for the sake of suffering. Another caveat is when I'm talking about suffering, I'm not talking about perceived injustices and persecution or consequences that come from your own stupid and sinful choices and decisions in your life. When the game warden throws you into jail, this is probably a better southern illustration than for northerners, but when the game warden throws you into jail for fishing with dynamite 
and you think that you're in jail because you have a little fish sticker on the side of your boat, I'm not talking to you, okay? I want to be very clear. What I'm talking about with suffering, holy suffering, I'm talking about suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering as a result of holiness, suffering because you are living out the gospel in love and grace and truth, suffering that comes as a result of Christ being the stumbling block and not you being the stumbling block. This is righteous, God-glorifying suffering. I want to give you five ways that I see a holiness and suffering and the, how they're connected uh, and the ways that God uses that in the book of 1 Peter. And again, this is just kind of a bird's eye overview of flying over this book and looking at it. And, uh, and hopefully as we delve into some of these, we'll be able to unpack them a little bit more uh, sufficiently here. So five ways that holiness and suffering are connected. The first one, holy living is refined in the midst of suffering. Our holiness, we become more holy in the fiery trials that God has willed and put in our lives. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, The tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that is tested by fire. That's the role that suffering has in a holy life, is that it refines holiness within us. God uses that. Um, the second thing that uh, God, way that God uses suffering in our holiness, it says, holy living can thrive in the midst of suffering. That's what First Peter says in here. Uh, says that we can rejoice now in the midst of these sufferings with an inexpressible joy, filled with glory. And we can do that now because of the hope that we have in Christ. We can thrive as Christians in the midst of suffering. And it's no surprise that the fastest growing, uh, the fastest growing evangelical areas of the world are um, in persecuted countries. In the midst of suffering, uh, Christianity is flourishing. Third thing is holy living in the midst of suffering glorifies God. Chapter 2, 19, it says, when you do good and suffer for it, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Gracious means it brings God joy, it brings him pleasure, and it brings delight. What's the purpose of our life? To do that very thing. And us going through suffering unjustly and in a holy way brings delight to our heavenly Father. Fourth thing is holy living in the midst of suffering reflects Christ and is a huge part of our gospel testimony. I love this uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, 2. It says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There's a battle in this world. And part of that battle is for us as Christians being prepared to suffer. We're armed with that same way of thinking that Christ approached the cross. We approach whatever suffering that is we find in our life with that same Christ-like mentality. In another great verse, it says, For this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you examples so that you might follow in his step. Your gospel witness is wrapped up in how you deal and walk through conflict and struggle and hardship. You want to know how to show the gospel to people? Don't give them a tract. Love and endure hardship. Scripture tells us one of the fruit of the Spirit is being long-suffering. 
we've downgraded that. Oh, you just be patient with people. I don't think that's what God is talking about. He wants us to be willing to suffer. That's what it takes for a long time because Jesus suffered. And how will they know that Jesus was willing to suffer because of God's love if we're not willing to suffer for the sake of God's love as well? So a lost world can see how much God loves. Our gospel witness is tied up in our ability to go through hardship and trials in a holy, God-glorifying way that does not include complaining and whining. And we can, that's a whole other sermon I'll stay away from this morning. Fifth thing, holy living in the midst of suffering is rewarded by an imperishable hope and immeasurable joy. It's counterintuitive, but it's biblical. I think as we suffer for the sake of righteousness, holy suffering, I believe our joy in the Lord increases. I believe our hope increases. I believe that God blesses us. When you suffer for righteous sake, chapter 3, verse 14 says, you will be blessed. Have you ever thought that by running from trial and hardship and suffering, we may actually be fighting against the will of God and in so doing, are removing God's intended blessings out of your life, his intended joy out of your life. You are precluding God from doing the very thing he wants to accomplish through your personal holiness and your righteous walk with him. You've thought about that? I think it's important that we do. When we as Christians are willing to suffer, I think this is really awesome, we got to realize that it takes Satan's leverage out of our lives. When we as Christians are willing to go through hardship and pain, Satan isn't able to use that to leverage us, to get us to go a different direction, to go back with the flow again. I remember years ago as a teenager, I heard a story about uh, the persecuted church uh, back behind the Iron Curtain, the days of communism where when uh, Europe, Eastern Europe was dominated by communism and it was against the law to be a Christian. There were no, uh, you were not allowed to be a Christian and it was punishable by either, either being thrown into jail or, or, uh, or being killed. And a lot of Christians were killed as a result. And there was this one man who was a Christian and he was taken into custody and he was threatened for being a Christian. And the guards told him, they said, uh, they said, if you do not renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, we will kill you. And you know what his response to them was? He says, your weapon is to kill me. My weapon is to die. He took that leverage that Satan had in his life away because this life was not his hope. His hope was somewhere different, not in this world. He took that leverage of suffering and pain away from Satan, and Satan was not able to leverage that to get him to renounce his faith. And that might seem like an extreme example, but that's ha what happens on a daily basis when we are tempted with, do we follow comfort? Do we follow what's easy? Or do we do what's hard and allow God to use hardship and trials and difficulties in our lives to produce holiness, to produce joy and blessedness in our life. I was reading a book 
a while back, and in it there was a chapter on suffering. It talks specifically about the persecuted church in China, and it listed the five pillars of the, uh, the Chinese church. Um, and again, this is uh, currently the Chinese church is being persecuted in very harsh ways. There's a period that the government allowed the church to come above ground, so to speak, and to build churches, and, and it's being subdued again currently. But these are the five pillars of the uh, Chinese church. I think you'll like four of them. First one, deep commitment to prayer. Amen. Second one, a commitment to God's word. Amen. Third, commitment to sharing the gospel. Amen. Fourth one, regular expectation of miracles. That sounds weird to us as Americans, but when you're reading God's word, when you're praying, when you're sharing the gospel, God promises to work in supernatural ways, in ways that we cannot work and do. So an expectation of miracles, I think, is, is, is good. And the fifth one is embrace suffering for the glory of Christ. They have that in their doctrinal statement, guys. Have you ever gone to a church that as they listed all the things that we believe in, have you ever gone to a church that has ever said, we embrace suffering for the sake of Christ? We embrace hardship, holy suffering. I've never seen it. I want to. I want to add something to our doctrinal statement. I want to add this. Suffering for us as Americans is something that we hope for and we imagine for the end of our Christian faith. Remember thinking like, oh, I hope if I ever go through suffering, I, I just hope that I would be faithful enough to stand up under you know, that persecution. If, if someone ever threatened me, I, I hope I could, I could be faithful to God and, and say, your weapon is to kill me and my weapon is to die. I'd love to be able to think that I could possibly say that. We think that that is the end of our sanctification, that if we can do that, then we have arrived as Christians. But the Chinese church, Chinese Christians, being willing to suffer for their faith is not the end of their sanctification. It's the beginning of their sanctification. As soon as they become Christians, their faith, their, their lives are threatened. Their livelihood is threatened. Their families are threatened. And I think we've got to be willing as American Christians to think about the role that God intends suffering to play in our lives that are called to be holy. Going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 2, I like to think that Peter is perfectly qualified to write this letter and to speak authoritatively on this matter because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he saw, he witnessed, he spoke with, he ate with, and lived with holiness incarnate. Peter lived with Jesus he saw the holy of holies in Jesus. And at the very same time in 1 Peter 5, Jesus said, or Peter said, I was also a witness of Christ's sufferings. And I think it was a struggle for Peter to reconcile these two, to have Jesus and to have this suffering 
come and be married together in the gospel. Matthew 16, 21 through 23 tells us about Peter's struggle. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, to be raised to life. And Peter went to Jesus. I appreciate Peter's discretion. He took Jesus aside. Very proper of him. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. No. Jesus just said, I'm going to the cross to die. And Peter said, no, you're holy. You can't suffer. Not going to let it happen. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you do not have in mind the things that are God's, but the things that are men. I can't help but think that this is our struggle too, the same struggle that Peter's going through. When it comes to holiness and suffering, to say like Peter, this should never happen to you, and consequently, it should never happen to me. But Peter learned, and I believe he is trying to help the Christians in modern-day Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey, to learn this also, to gain the mind of Christ to be holy, to embrace the will of God that includes suffering and hardship and trials. Jesus promised this. In John 15, 18 through 21, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love, uh, would love its own. But because you are not of the world, swim in a different direction. I chose you out of the world because this world hates you. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus promised that his holy people would suffer as he suffered. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be caught off guard. We need to expect, anticipate, and embrace that this is part of God's will for our lives. To close, Peter gave three things in the opening couple of verses. We're just going to, I feel bad, but I'm going to have to breeze through them, but each one could be a sermon in itself again. He gave three things in his letter that I think were meant to comfort these exiles these strangers, these aliens of these Christians living in this world, going a different direction and being persecuted. He called them the elect, the chosen ones. God chose them to be that, to go through what they were going through. This was not an accident. This was part of God's will and that he chose them. According to the foreknowledge of God, God chose them. Not only did he choose them, in verse 3 it says, according to his great mercy, he called us. This is part of God's merciful plan 
for our lives. And the reason for it, it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the role that this, this suffering has to play, is sanctification through the Spirit in our lives for obedience to Jesus Christ so that we can have a living hope and an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable and held in heaven for us.